2: Could just be me.
1: Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a Minute Without Parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
2: With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics,
3: Well, hey, everybody. It is me, Rosie O'Donnell. How are you on this Tuesday? Are you doing well? Listen, I got to tell you what happened. I wake up on this school morning, and I hear the freaking lawnmower guy going, and it's 7.15, and um, I don't know what to do. I'm thinking... I should go out there and go across the street and talk to them or next to my, where it must be right next door, you know? So I get up, I do my morning routine. I come downstairs and I see it's my yard that has the guy with the weed whacker and the blower. Now I live in a rented house here, right? So I don't schedule the pool and the lawn people that's, you know, taken care of by the landlord. But, um, I was so mad. I was so ready to go over and yell at one of my neighbors, you know, (laughs) and I was the bad neighbor. So, so there you have it. That's what happened to me this morning. Listen, we have a very interesting show today and I want to give a trigger warning right up front. Uh, These are issues that are discussed during my conversation. Uh, Rape, sexual child abuse, emotional abuse, and incest. And, uh, this discussion is not graphic in any nature, but it's a truthful discussion of events with those topics. So I want everyone to make sure that, uh, they're ready to, to listen to this. It might be hard for some people and I'm acknowledging that. So, so, um, here we go. I'm going to be speaking with Lyle Menendez. As you know, he and his brother. Uh, were convicted of the 1996 murder of their parents, Jose and Mary Louise Kitty Menendez. Lyle Menendez is 55 years old. In March, I watched a documentary that presented new evidence in their case. And the result of that evidence now leaves them in a position where they may be resentenced. And that's the hope with new evidence in a habeas. And And Lyle is very smart and he understands all of this. And he and I have a conversation. You know, he is in prison and we left in all of the interruptions with the prison telephone system. I thought it felt real and and provided some kind of a a frame as to uh, his life for the last 34 years in prison. Now sit back and listen to uh, myself and uh, Lyle Menendez. Hello, let me merge you. Hello,
4: yeah, I'm here.
3: Well, today um, we are going to have a, a long discussion with somebody that you've heard of and you've had an opinion about, probably. I've come to know him in the last few months, and so here he is, Lyle Menendez. Hello, Lyle. How are you?
4: Hi, Rosie. I'm uh, doing pretty well. Pretty well. Thank you.
5: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
4: for having me. Big news
3: in your case that came out sometime in March, um, about a former member of Menudo, and uh, tell everybody your father's connection to Menudo.
4: My father was a record executive, uh, in charge of RCA Records, so had a huge number of artists, and took an interest in a Latin band, the boy band Menudo, and, uh, Defended the the producer and kind of owner of the group in the uh, early eighties, nineteen eighties.
0: And
3: so, uh, just recently, a guy that had you ever heard of Roy?
4: I have not really heard of any of the band members other than Ricky Martin, probably like everybody else, uh,
3: right, right,
4: in the United States. You know, it was kind of a um, uh, big band, but the kind of names kind of came and go because I kept replacing the. The teenagers in the group.
3: Yeah, as they uh, got as was, they got older. As they got older they kicked right. them out and got a new kid, right?
4: <laughs> yeah. So it was a creepy concept from the beginning, I guess.
3: Yes, yeah, so, without uh, without a yeah. doubt.
4: Right. And it turned out to be uh somewhat purposeful as things of the come out uh in documentaries and investigations in Puerto Rico and and overseas. But Uh, So I did not know uh, Roy and didn't know uh, the fact that he had been uh, raped by my father and was another victim Uh, came out through a documentary investigation they were doing on the band separately from anything related to Eric and I.
3: And that documentary has now kind of paved the way for possible freedom for you and your brother.
4: Well, the, the trial always—you know—a large part of the trial revolved around what you believe was the reason for um, the family violence in the case, and so uh, uh, yeah, there was no There was no, a, a great deal of evidence was presented, in the second trial, a lot of it was excluded.
3: And <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, that, uh, I think I think well, that was something that really surprised me. You know, the first trial, the one that we watched on TV with Leslie Abrams and, and you and your brother, that trial was, um, you were not found guilty in that
4: trial. Right. It was like nine to three for manslaughter. And there was two juries. Eric was six to six and I think I was nine to three. So it was not very, very close. Right.
3: right. So So in the interim after that, they decided to try you again. Right,
4: but it took how many years? Six years? I don't know. I think it was like two and a half years in between. It seemed like forever because there was enough time for the LA riots, the Rodney King beating case to be acquitted, o- O.J. Simpson got acquitted, his whole trial occurred in between our two trials, and uh, you know a number of um, TV movies were released. So we really came into the second trial in a very different position in terms of the public.
3: And the DA and the same judge that presided over your first trial was the presiding over this trial and they decided together that they would not allow any evidence of the sexual abuse to Mm -hmm. be used in the second trial.
4: It was um, extremely limited. So it pretty, it put Eric in a position to just sort of have to take the stand and talk about it all without any real supporting Witnesses uh, and family members that knew about it. So, of course, that made it much harder for the jury to know what to believe. And then you had the prosecutor that uh, I did, they changed the prosecutor to somebody who was more aggressively willing to say that things were just not true, even though I think he he knew that probably wasn't the case because he had, he had re- excluded a lot of the evidence that showed that certain things were true. And so the judge uh, changed some of the jury instructions. They asked that the cameras be turned off so the public couldn't watch. And it just had that feeling of uh, it being sort of, uh, you know, maneuvered to get a certain result. And then and, and that did happen.
5: Uh, right. And the, and the
3: result uh, changed your life and world forever because you and your brother both got life without the possibility of parole.
5: Right.
4: Yeah, it and was You know, we went from really thinking that it was an argument about manslaughter uh, to suddenly having the kind of sentence that like a serial killer has.
5: Right.
3: How old were you uh, on that night in 1989?
4: I was 21. My brother was 18.
3: Right. And uh, the abuse started in your house when you were quite young. But for you, you had arrested... Uh, when you turned
4: eight, correct? Um, I was, in, I was sexually abused by my father between like six and eight, and I complained to a family member. She complained to my mother about it, and so it um, stopped. It's hard to it's hard for me to know if it stopped immediately afterwards, but uh, it seemed like it did. And then uh, it just I. And then it a, clearly, uh, my father moved on to my brother. Um, and uh, Which
3: was not known by you, not known by you.
4: I had some sense that something might have been going on in my mid-teens, but um, I confronted uh, my father and brother, and neither one said that it was true. Uh, and I just sort of went into denial about it and did not really uh, hear about it again until... Um, maybe a week, a little bit less than a week before uh, August 20th when the shootings occurred.
3: Yeah, the week before that occurred, you were in Princeton with your mother setting up your off-campus apartment for your um, starting uh, school back at Princeton, correct?
4: Yes, I was supposed to start my sophomore year in college at Princeton. I played for their tennis team and it was kind of my hometown, too, Princeton, so that's where I went to high school, and some of my mother wanted... Uh, a, but we decided to have me live off campus um, closer to my aunt, so they bought a condominium out there, and then she came out to help me furnish it, and we had just finished all that. And, uh, so I was just in a very good place myself. Um, obviously, I came from you know, a very traumatic childhood, but, uh, you know, you kind of... Sometimes you can survive your childhood and you go on and and you can function, you know, as a good adult. And I, I felt like I was on my way. I was doing fine. And uh, then I just kind of hit this wall with Eric.
3: More after this. so you came home and Eric was crying one day and your mom was um, what state was your mom in at that point this was a week after you two set up your apartment in Princeton
4: yeah I mean I don't really want to go through the whole week if we can avoid it um, no no i was I, just you know,
3: saying i was trying to just tell the people the things that i maybe didn't know and since uh being in contact with you and your wife that i have found out that i thought was was interesting i, I don't want to make you go through with that and that's not um, i'm just saying that 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 night something erupted and the truth of your family's secret was revealed yeah,
4: i mean in a in, a, in, a, in a shorter sense my uh my brother was uh hoping to go to was hoping that he would get out of this situation he was in with his father where he was in a you could call it a you know he was in a sexual relationship with his father obviously we we know that that would be considered like rape and abuse um had been going on for a decade or more and he thought he was going to be able to live off on campus at UCLA, where he was going to be starting school that September, and when he was informed by his father that that wouldn't be happening, he was going to have to stay at home, That my brother knew that meant the abuse was going to continue, there was really no way out, and he began to feel suicidal, and then he knew that I was about to leave back to school in New Jersey, on the other side of the country, and so before I could leave, he felt that he needed to cry for help and tell me what had been going on, and that kind of cascaded into this... Last couple of days before um, what happened uh, with me confronting my father and trying to rescue my brother from that situation and that going horribly bad and threats back and you know threats back and forth and trying to be threatening to expose my father and then my mother my mother entering it, you know letting uh, us realizing my mother knew and arguments with her and our feeling our, our level of fear and uh, just just you know just overwhelming really emotion and um just led to you know just horrific life-changing events
3: in a home where there's incest and there's secrets and there's abuse um people who haven't lived in that kind of situation i don't think fully understand how captive a child is to their parent who is Controlling them and grooming them and abusing them in in ways that they don't even yet understand
4: Especially then right i mean this happened to me in the 70s it happened to eric in the 80s and um you know where this is 1989 and it just wasn't you know i'm it's interesting because like the gen z generation today just assumes that, oh, well, if you're having trouble at home, you talk to all your friends, you post about it on social media, people help you. There was none of that back then. You were very isolated. There was no internet. There was no contacting friends. There was no school counselor asking what's going on at home, how are you doing. Nobody knew that there was a problem with sex abuse of boys. Nobody knew to ask those questions. There There was just no cultural mechanism to believe or understand. And so to that weekend, it's like, you know, I mean, I felt, we felt, you know, it's hard to say, you know, we look back and I feel like, I can't believe, like it's easy now for me to look back and say, wow, I should have just found some way out of that weekend without violence. But in the moment, you just feel trapped and just overwhelmed. And so i you know, and it just shatters everyone's lives, right? Yeah. You, you, physically, you survive it, but emotionally, you don't really survive it.
3: No, and, and it comes back throughout You You're have 60 seconds remaining. Oh,
4: hey, Ro, can, can I, I call back? Sure, yep. Oh, okay. I'll
3: do that. Oh. Okay, thank you. Um, sorry, where were we?
4: Sorry about that. Wait, you have to Every 15 minutes they cut you off and you have to call back. I think they don't think that anyone in prison is interesting enough to talk to you for more than 15 minutes. <laughs> that's not the case. That's Hopefully pretty funny. That's not, the here.
3: not the case, not the case. Um, okay, yeah, so listen, so I think what, what where we were was talking about like the culture at the time too, that, you know, people were not willing to believe that, fathers rape their sons i think as a culture and there's enough proof and there's enough that fathers rape their daughters but when you put boys into the equation and um people get all tabooed out they don't they can't imagine they, it's too much for them to, to even consider and um i think that if eric was erica and you had found out that your father had been raping her For all those years, and you protected her, and this is the the bad choice that you wish you didn't, but did make at the time. Um, You know, people would have you as the role of a hero in society, right?
4: Yeah, I think it would have at least been something that people understood better and could evaluate what, it, what justice is in that situation, right? And, and I just, Eric and I could not get to that point was in the, in the early 90s, at trial. Uh, half of Eric's jury, they were men, and all of them afterwards, uh, when they were talking about jury deliberations, were making comments like, well, you know, he must be gay. He could...
5: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
4: It, it couldn't be that the father was forcing him to have sex. And there's a total lack of understanding of what incest is and right. re- related to boys. right? Correct. And and I don't even think it was accepted in the eighties and the early nineties that, that fathers were child predators like that. Right. Uh, I think it was, it was another decade or two before, certainly another decade before, after our trial, before people understood that, uh, Child molesters, or could be your teacher, could be your gym coach, could be your an executive, a father. You know, uh, predators could be people like a Bill Cosby or your, uh, you know, uh, household names, or you're just your neighbor. You know, there was a sense that child molesters were kind of like creeps and trench coats hanging around schools, and not regular people. And now, of course, we know that's completely untrue. Completely. Uh, that, that, yes. There's no type. Uh, you can be. I mean, back then, I was. We were dealing with lots of myths. Um, some of the jurors didn't think that a married man could be somebody that could also sexually abuse a boy. Of course, we know that's not true now. Uh, a, a, a lot of the child molesters um, that sexually abuse boys are married. People, right. People didn't believe that a woman would choose her her predator husband over her children. And now That happens
3: that as know. well. That happens as well. Right?
4: Right, A lot of times the wife chooses the husband to the point of of bringing children to him. Uh, So we just, you know, as well as the danger that children are in from parents. You know, I don't, you know, so there was just a lot of myths that uh, we were dealing with in the 90s that led to, I think, a really bad result, the trial. And, you know, I don't know, I think it would be very different today. Um, I remember Dick Wolf saying at a, at a, event that he was at when he, you know, he produced that time-time series on on our case that I thought was very well done.
3: Yes, so he, well, he where, Falka,
4: right? the one with Falco, right? Right, where he yeah. played Leslie Abramson, right? Just did a brilliant job. And uh, he said that um, he felt like if culturally, if the trial had taken place today, uh, it would have been a, a more clear manslaughter result we would have still done a lot of prison time, but it would not be, you know, in this situation that, it, you know, has to be trying to see if we can, you know, change it. You know, and so right. it, I think, you know, I agree with that.
3: You know, um, you know, people don't realize when I tell them that I've uh, been communicating, people say to me, oh, God, what's he been in there, like, 20 years? I'm, like, 34.
1: Right.
3: <laughs> 30 people don't realize because... You know, it was a cultural moment for for the country and everyone had their opinion on, you know, whether or not you were um, in it for the money, although there really was no evidence or proof for anything of that besides the spending spree that you traumatized, sexually abused, incested children responded with a trauma response after the freedom that, that you felt, and, and as well as the horror,
4: correct? Right. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I think that due evidence is one, is why it's, it's, for me personally, I think my brother too, um, we've talked about it. It, it, It's so important to be believed. You know, I don't know what the legal result is. And those things are kind of out of our hands. Um, we're obviously extremely hopeful. Our families are very hopeful um, because, you know, we have the, our, fa- our whole family supports us almost uniformly, which has really just been a blessing and amazing forgiveness there, understanding. Um, but, I, you know, I, just being believed is so important. You know, I I communicate with I've communicated with just tens of thousands of sex abuse victims over the years, and uh, the need to be recognized and believed for what happened to you um, is really powerful to healing. And so, to go through a trial where you know there's a whole prosecutor's office trying to tell the public, "Oh, this is not true. Don't believe it." It's just a horrifying thing in itself. Yeah, it's very debilitating. So, uh, which is something I've struggled with over the last few decades. And so to, you know, and then suddenly another victim comes forward and now it's like, yeah, it's very hard now for someone to say they don't believe that's pretty, I mean, I don't know how you say it now.
3: Yeah, um, I agree. And you know, and that not only is good. there the, the new evidence of another victim of your father, but your brother's letter was found by your mother's sister, Correct.
4: Uh, my father's sister, uh, her son, Andy, Eric used to correspond with him in the early 80s and late 80s, I guess. Um, they were both teenagers. Uh, and she found a letter for the Eric wrote, and it had been in storage for 25 years, um, that wasn't about uh, directly uh, all about the sex abuse, but referenced it pretty graphically. And so... Um, Amazingly, she did not actually give it to anybody Uh, My attorneys or anything, she gave it to Barbara Walters for a show Because she just didn't think there were even any appeals uh, going on Uh, And, you know, just so much time had passed by She just didn't think about it But eventually we saw it on that show People investigated and realized that it was a letter that no one had found Had not been presented at trial Had been in storage for 25 years Because her son had died in 2003 So she just packed everything up and um, so it's very powerful evidence uh, because it was written prior to, eight months prior to my parents' death. So it was something, you know, before, well, you know, reasonably before and and kind of proving what happened. So th- those two okay. new pieces of evidence, they pretty much dispel the notion of what happened in terms of at least sex abuse.
3: Right. Right, and, I, I, and there's a whole generation of people now on the internet, who are college kids who were taught your case in school, and they're all like, how the hell did these kids get life without the possibility of parole? Well, these two new pieces of evidence have given you the first real shot at possibly not spending the rest of your life in jail with this habeas. Tell everyone what a habeas is.
4: I'm not a legal expert. But I know I, enough. But of I know it. you know yeah. us. Uh, you no more
3: than me. what is, What exactly? <laughs> tell you, do?
4: you they, do not operate on yourself, so I don't try like some of the guys in here in prison that are legal eagles. Uh, okay. But uh, essentially, if new evidence, in the case of new evidence, you would file a habeas. Like for you know, uh, you've seen a lot of. Uh, because of the advances in DNA evidence, a lot of people that were here for rape, they've now been able to test the sperm and realize, oh, that wasn't the rapist. So what do you do in that situation where 25 years later you realize, oh, that, that guy wasn't the rapist? You file a habeas, you introduce the new evidence, and an experienced um, habeas judge, uh, <laughs> you know, evaluates the evidence and makes a determination that this would have changed the verdict. So it's the same in this case, um, you know, um, the fact that there's you know, powerful evidence that this, this, at least the underlying kind of foundational issues of sex abuse are true, then would that have altered the jury's uh, verdict? I think it's pretty obvious, probably would. Um, and the jurors, in fact, after it had been interviewed, said that it would. Uh, And so, and then you have a whole first trial where a lot of that evidence was presented and and it was a different result. So you kind of already know that it would be a different result if it had been presented. Uh, And so, you know, that creates a havia situation. So what happens is a very experienced judge downtown um, evaluates it and has hearings and makes decisions. And I guess my understanding is he can make any kind of decision he wants in terms of like, just reversal to a lesser sentence.
3: And if, let's like, say, they they resentenced you and, and said to you and your brother that it was manslaughter, um, then you would have already served your time for that charge, correct?
4: Well, we've served so much time. I mean, people who have been here for first-degree premeditated murder with no mitigative circumstances have gone and paroled. In the entire time Eric and I have been here, they've served their entire time for murder and gone home. That's how much time Eric and I have done. We watch people go home every day. So uh, we've done like three times the amount that you would do on manslaughter. So I don't know um, how much more time we would do. Um, It's kind of all new for us. Like you said, this was just found in March and uh, Roy came forward this year. So I don't know, Um, we're hopeful, we're very hopeful. And I have a 91-year-old aunt who's uh, my mother's sister, and she was she desperately wants to see something happen before something happens to her, and so we're just all very hopeful and anxious.
3: Nearly all of your family, your extended family, your father's and your mother's siblings and whatnot. Nearly all, not all. There's one right holdout or something, but nearly all are totally forgiven you and your brother, and are on your side and were witness to the life you had led when they were alive.
4: Right, we have, you know, uh, know, I've been fortunate that because there's been so much coverage of the trial and the evidence in the trial, my huge extended family can see for themselves what happened. Right. right. And so they don't have to come to prison and hear it directly from me. They can evaluate it themselves. They can watch court TV. A lot of them have the entire trial is on court TV's websites. That was recorded, the first trial. Uh, you can just watch my, my whole testimony itself. And so they have they have just sort of come to the conclusion that it's, it should have been a manslaughter case. Um, and what happened wasn't fair, so they support us um, tremendously. They support the, some sort of resentencing in this case. Um, and, um, I, you know, it's, it's amazing and um, very rare. Uh, very rare, yes.
5: um,
3: Also, what's well, very rare is that uh, you had no incidents of violence before that evening in 89, uh, and you have had none since, is that correct?
4: Yes. Uh, yeah, my brother and I are just that's another reason my family just couldn't believe that we were even possibly involved in, in, in this at first because it's just,
5: look, You have 60 seconds
0: remaining.
4: There's no violence in our history. There's no violence in the 30 years in prison since. And this is really um, just a horrific circumstance that I, you know, I realize now like anybody's capable of, of things that, that you know, shock you. Um, if, because the circumstances is horrifying enough. Right. And you're young, you know, especially if you're young and you're not really, you don't have the life experience to deal with it. Um,
3: yeah. Well, when we come back, we're going to uh, take a little break here, come right back. And I want to talk, Lyle, about all that you have done since you have been in prison because I was very blown away by your accomplishments. <laughs> Got to
4: tell you. <laughs> okay.
3: More after this.
5: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
3: Okay. All
4: right, we're back. Okay.
3: All right. Uh, Yeah, so um, since we've gotten to know each other, um, you know, I've been very curious into the way you have chosen to spend your life in prison, and uh, Lyle, it's it's rather impressive.
4: <laughs> well, we've had a lot of time to work on it.
3: You certainly have. You certainly have. Yeah. Right, right now, you're in the middle of a project that you came up with the beautification and restoration project. Is that the name?
4: Right. So I just. Um, when I, what I felt is that as corrections moved to figure out how to deal with this her- terrible recidivism problem they're having with guys coming right back to prison after they parole, which was also obviously causing more victims in the public, um, they have to think about how to do rehabilitation differently. And so they they started to do a lot of rehabilitative classes and evidence-based programs to get people to uh, um, sort of reduce their criminality. But they were was struggling to be successful. And I felt um, my own experience was that one of the reasons is because the living environment was sending an opposite message. Uh, it wasn't a rehabilitative message. It was kind of a message that, that was dehumanizing. It was very oppressive. It was kind of like, we don't trust you to be a citizen out there. And people tend to, you know, that tends to be self-fulfilling. They will, they will kind of, people will behave the way you, you expect them to sometimes. And so I um, looked at did some research on what they were doing in Europe and in Norway with um, changing the way yards, the prison yards look and the way you treat each other in prison and building more of a sense of community. And I felt like that could be done in a California prison. So I um, asked permission to do that here in kind of a sweeping project where um, we would be all done through public donations, so it wouldn't use taxpayer money. And we would redesign the yard by putting uh, artificial grass and meeting spaces and water and natural uh, elements and kind of de-emphasize the prison institutional aspects of the, of the yard facility and create a sense of community that you could then start really working on your rehabilitation and your change in your own identity as, a, as somebody who was going to be a productive citizen, that that wasn't something that you should wait until you release them into society, that you could do it here first, show that that person could do that, and then release them. And so that's what I've been working on for, you know, half a decade, and uh, I think this will be a very important year in installing a lot of this. We have uh, the full support of the upper administration administration and we're working with local business and prominent members of the community to fund it, including Guide Dogs of America who have a service dog program here. They're really helping um, and other organizations. So um, it's very exciting. I spend, you know, a huge amount of time on it. Uh, It's very helpful healing for me. It's all done through volunteerism, you know, service to others is really a huge part of the rehabilitative uh, process. And uh, now for my brother and I, my brother's uh, one of the better painters in uh, the California system. So one part of the project is that we're painting these sweeping landscape murals uh, all along the inside of the prison yard. It's going to be the longest, when it's completed, it'll be the longest continuous mural in a U.S. prison. It's about 33,000 square feet. All of it through donated paint. And all of it done by inmate artists. It's pretty spectacular. I'm sure that all the pictures and videos of it will all be available online um, at some point. Some of it's already out there, actually, if you Google Donovan and mural, uh, murals and Menendez it should come up, probably. Um, but, uh, it's just, you know, it's a big project, but we're hoping it can be replicated at other prisons. Um, people are coming from all around to kind of see the progress. Uh, you came in, and that was a beautiful, beautiful day. And
3: yeah, that. and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous mural. It's uh, you know, it's everywhere you stand in the yard. Where you turn, you you see beauty instead of just grayness, You know, it's it's pretty remarkable.
4: Yeah, and I mean, it's, done staff. it's good that. To... It's great. All inmate artists. Yeah, amazing. And but it's it's not to sort of make prison you know a nicer place to do prison time. It has a direct effect on recidivism and and, and victimization out there. Like if you treat uh, a human like they're a pit bull in the backyard and you know in a oppressive environment, you really can't expect them to be released into the public and be and understand how to be a good neighbor. Right. And they have to. You know. You have to learn this here. You have to treat people humanely and get them to understand how to function in a community environment here where you care for your neighbors here. And then that will translate out there. You know, And so there's, there's a growing understanding of that now in corrections and in right. the California legislature.
5: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
4: You know, I'm here on the ground, obviously, a prisoner also. And so I just felt like, you know what, we can do it from the ground up. I can organize this. Let's try to do this here on, on, at Donovan in, in San Diego. And uh, I appreciate the support of the administration. And uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes.
3: Yeah, it's pretty, um, it's pretty amazing that you were, were 21 at the time and that you have accomplished so much while you were there. You entered college, right?
4: Well, and in prison, one of the first yeah. to do that. I was interesting in the in the 2000s. I was the only. I was in a prison up, up north, and I was the only one out of 3,000 inmates that was taking a college course. It was crazy. Like I would literally sit by myself in the classroom, the only one there. And I was just ingrained in me to continue my education because I had my family had a, a great deal of education prior to prison. So I was continuing that. I just felt it was important for my own. Personal growth. You know, I was very immature when all this happened. a uh, Contributing factor. I felt so I just wanted to continue my education. But now you fast forward to 2023, and most of the inmates here are in college classes and and in uh, school. Almost everyone. And it's a really ch- it's a big change. Uh, I think it's a really healthy change. Uh, and one of the I'm actually uh, finishing my bachelor's at UC Irvine. Um, for, uh, to get a degree in sociology uh, and to have face to face professors that come in and to get your actual bachelor's from UC Irvine. It's the first time they're doing it. My well, that's fantastic. That's, uh, that's wonderful.
3: Yeah, thank you. Did, didn't you thank also you. start a group for life without prisoners?
4: Uh, I started two groups. One was to help uh, prisoners who have uh, sex abuse in their childhood history. Um, bringing doctors in to work with them, uh, getting them to write out their stories, um, and become comfortable with that because not coming to grips with what happened to you as a child can cause you to victimize others. And that, you know, uh, it's a cycle of abuse. So trying to help break that. So I formed a group that, that works with that, um, subject. And then I formed a group of, Guys that are in similar situations, my brother and I, where we have life without the possibility of parole, but we're all what's considered youth offenders, meaning that crime occurred before age 25. My brother and I were on the low end of that with 21 and 18. Um, And so we kind of get together as a group and try to keep each other out of trouble and help mentor other inmates and use our time, our experience in prison to help others who are going to be getting out. Um, And so, you know, that's been very rewarding.
3: Yeah. How um how do you keep your spirits high? I know you keep yourself very busy. <laughs> you are a very busy person even though you're in prison. But how do you keep emotionally from not looking at the heart um, forever,
4: you know? Right. And and that's a good question because suicide rates in prison are, are not good. Uh, mental health issues in prison, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, disorders, and other things are are high. Um, But my brother and I, like, for me, it's family connection. I stay very close to my family, my extended family. I've been married also 20 years. um, And to my wife, Rebecca. So just family connection is one way. Um, And the other is just realizing that the, the suffering that Eric and I maybe experience in prison is just unavoidable, right? There's nothing we can really do about that, but we can find fulfillment in sort of a shared experience with others and finding productive ways to use that experience, especially myself with a, with a abuse history uh, there's so many guys in here with abuse histories, and I have a strong connection to the abuse community outside the prison, so I have a, a large Facebook page and in in public figure page in my name that my family runs. Mm. I have, uh, you know, I respond through mail. So I'm very connected in that way. So all of those things together sort of create a, a support for me. Um, and, yeah, right. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping also that if you know if Eric and I are released that um I've already talked to the administration about continuing my work within the prisons being able to come back and continue to work with people here guys here at these I got this um, project rehabilitated project here to redesign the yards. Um, I would love to do that. Um,
3: Is't it true that the recidiv- the recidivism rates in Norway are like four percent you know and the
4: recidivism no, they went rate- from they are. were seventy plus. Per, they went. They were seventy plus percent.
5: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
4: Through these new methods of changing the way a prison yard looks and how you interact with inmates and creating a sense of community, and they were able to plummet it down to the twenties, uh, which is pretty. Uh, it's really unheard of isn't um, uh, sure that low. And in California, it's up in the fifties. It's very high. Uh, over, over majority of people come up but come back. Um, so that has to be changed. It's too expensive. it's It's a public welfare threat.
0: right.
4: So I think we'll change it. You know I think we'll change it uh,
3: how How have you found uh, having the support of of your wife through this journey? I mean, that must have been you know a lifesaver in many ways.
4: It is. I mean one of, yeah, one of the things you learned though is that like, when you're here, like your family suffers with you. Yes. They suffer from from that absence and from worrying about you. And it's no different with my wife, uh, as well as my extended family. So they've been really brave and strong and and supportive. She's been tremendous. She's from my hometown in New Jersey. Um, and, and she's a litigator. too. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's a lawyer. She is. Yeah, not in not in criminal yep. cases and business cases, right, or something. <laughs> Do not let your wife uh, handle your appeal. No, no,
3: that's not a good idea,
4: right? <laughs> it sounds cheap, but it uh, <laughs> won't work out to her. Right. So yeah, no, but she's she's tremendous and uh, put herself through law school. Uh, impressive woman. And, now
3: with this, yeah, with you have this to
4: have. You have to just sort of. Keep love in your life. You have to stay because yeah. it's you know you're surrounded by hard conditions here, yeah, and uh, uh, this oppressive environment. So I just try to stay, stay connected to, to uh, you know something softer.
3: Yeah. Keep listening. There's more to come.
1: Listen to The Daily Show, ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: How did it come to be that you and your brother, Eric, are now in the same prison? How, How did that come to be?
4: Well, we were... We were unfortunately separated when we first came to prison. I think um, all of the, the 90s, the conviction, the corrections kind of just mirrors the public sentiment. And at the time in the conviction in the 90s, their, their assumption was be very punitive with Lyle and Eric and separate them. And so they did. It was very unfortunate. My family was kind of horrified by it. And we stayed separated for two decades. Um, I worked very hard to try to, to get back to my brother. Couldn't do it. Um, and then I think as the culture changed and uh, there was a number of... Uh,
5: you had 60 seconds remaining.
4: Uh, should I call back?
3: Sure. Okay. Okay, bye. Um, so I, we were in the middle of, of uh, how you got to be reunited with your brother after two decades, right?
4: Right, so they, um, the corrections does kind of mirror the, the culture, and I think the shift um, in uh, the late 2000s, um, well, there was a number, there was a year or two where there was quite a few documentaries, just like there is this now again, um, on the case, and Dick Wolf uh, produces Law and & Order, and he did a, a prime time series that people can watch if they want, it's very good. Um, it was on NBC about the case, and um, I think that the public learned a lot about the case again at that time and felt very strongly that maybe there wasn't a just result. And then the last scenes in that show showed Eric and I being separated after the, after the conviction. And I think that, you know, there was a huge outpouring of concern about and kind of outrage about us being separated that, that went into corrections. Uh, just uh, apparently, just overwhelming amount of email and other stuff, and they just the corrections chiefs just decided that um, you know what that was probably the wrong thing to separate them, but at least now it's no longer a good idea and uh, not not right. They asked me about it, we we discussed it, and you know this whole you know my, I'm here in, in large part because I love my brother and and you know wanted to. Uh, rescue him and do you know we just have that bond i don't know if it's it's traumatic bonding from going through a childhood together like that but we still feel it incredibly strongly and so it was a little it was unfortunate circumstances my wife rebecca lived right across the street from me uh in northern california when i had i I was in charge of inmate government in northern california representing the inmates uh with the administration so i just kind of was very established so to leave and ask to leave and travel all the way across the state to San Diego and start over with my brother was really a big, a big deal. Quite a, quite a big, um, a lot to sacrifice there. And I just, um, but it's just like, I don't know, I never felt complete separated from Eric. I just felt right. like I couldn't, I couldn't find any peace in it. And I told my wife Rebecca, look, I, I need to be with my brother. I just can't uh, do the rest of my life because we didn't know that we would have this opportunity to get out that we have now. Right. And so she she's gracious. She shows grace. She understood. Um, and with the climate changing, they allowed me to go, and I, I was reunited with Eric, and that was pretty amazing. Yeah. What,
3: what did that moment... I mean, you
4: hadn't laid eyes on him, had you? I hadn't. No, we had correspondence approval so I could write, but that was it. So... Um, he looked um, in good condition, but older, as you would yeah. expect. And yep. I was, uh, but I, rec- I recognized him, Rosie. I recognized him. Of course, uh, you did. That's a good thing, because yeah, I would be really bad if I started hugging yeah, him.
3: Yeah, exactly. With the, wrong, Come on.
4: with the wrong brother. Yeah, like, wait, I'm over here, Lyle. Oh, exactly. So yeah. well,
3: yeah. He, I got to see uh, both Lyle and Eric when I went to visit the prison to. Uh, to see about this beautification and rehabilitation project it's it's pretty amazing. I also went there to see about the guide dogs, uh, which Dakota is uh, currently applied to get one. And I saw all the men who train the dogs, one of them that that Dakota will be getting. it was it was pretty overwhelming and fascinating. but um I, I saw you i I had seen a couple of images of you online. And then when I saw your brother, I was like, he looks just the same. you know he, to me he looked just the same.
4: yeah we're, we, we're kind of well preserved, right because it's like a big sardine can. yeah and so that's you know we're, we're relatively well preserved, but still it's a lot of passage of time.
3: Oh my God
4: yeah uh, And I was very emotional to see Eric you know, I burst into tears uh, mm, of course have a moment a moment together, uh, and it was just quite extraordinary. So it was worth it, all that work to try to, to get here. And we live right next to each other. Um, and we work on a lot of the same projects, work on some things separately. And um, it's, it's probably some piece...
3: Now you, you mentioned just before that um, you never thought there would be an a bit uh, a chance of you getting out, and now with this habeas and this new evidence, there there truly is. And um, have you and your brother discussed what that might be like for you
4: to, to get you out? Of jail, you know, right? I haven't done it. You know, I know. I know you say you know you should you should will it into existence. You know what I mean? And you talk about that, and I, I mean I, I get that. But it's much, it's a lot harder to do your time in prison when you're focused on being out of prison. Right. so I really have too much responsibility here with all this and just I really want to do a good job with it. And so I try not to get distracted. I try not to do that too much. Um, And then, of course, you know, you never know if you live in a world that isn't as fair as you you hope. And so I try to stay focused here, but... It is hard not to be hopeful, but my brother and I have not um, purposely, I think, not really discussed it.
3: Yeah, it must be hard to hope in there. Just even hard to, like, you, as you say, you got to focus on this minute, stay present.
5: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
4: Yes, but it would be amazing to have another chapter of life. And like I said, I have talked to corrections to try to uh, see if I could continue to do the work I'm doing here because. No, that's what I've been doing for 20 years to 30 years. So i right. like to use that experience and keep helping here. Uh, and the answer I've gotten is yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, there are so, some
3: people I've met who've spent time in prison. And when they're out or imagine getting out, they don't want anything to do with it ever again. They don't want to, you know, go fix the library in the prison. They don't want, they just want nothing to do with it. I think it's very commendable. That you care about this population that you are a part of for thirty-four years of your adult life. You you had a, abuse as a childhood. Yes, you were rich. Yes, there was a, a privilege that came with it. But the horrors of incest can never be measured. And um, you know, you went from that kind of prison to this kind of prison, and and freedom as an adult has has never been in your grasp, really.
4: Yeah, and, and exactly, I and mean, that was all beautifully said. Um, it's And prison is about the men that are here. There are a lot of them, you know, I mean, they've done some some terrible things, and they are doing, you know, California has pretty long, harsh sentences, um, and so a lot of them are just not the same people they were in their early 20s. And, I mean, yeah. so many guys here were like 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, and now they're in their 50s. And they should be, most of them will have a chance to get out, and so what kind of person do you want living next to you out there, you know? So I feel like I don't think it's a good idea for me to turn my back on on the men here and corrections here just because I've been released. That doesn't sound right, it doesn't feel right, and so I, I would like to continue to use that experience to work to work on uh, you know, recidivism rates and rehabilitation in prison. Um, I think I can do it. Um, and I'm just happy that there's support for
3: that. Yeah. I I really think there's tremendous support for you out here, Lyle. And, you know, I, I, um, have shared our friendship with a lot of my friends and all but one (laughs) was, you know, very interested in hearing, uh, who is the man that I have come to know is. And, uh, and I am uh, happy to say that, you know, you have become a true real friend and, uh, and I always believed what you said. I saw your brother and you testify. And I knew that there was no actor in the world who could act that unless they had lived it. And and um, you're not even an actor. So, but I could see you as a speaker. I could see you writing a book about your experience. I could see you continuing to help in the, in the corrections world and, uh, you know, you have not wasted a moment uh, of your life in there, uh, Lyle, and it's it's quite impressive.
4: Well, you have your time on earth that you have, and I just feel like um, I just didn't want to hide uh, in the shadows of, of, you know, with all the publicity and so on. I know that there are guys that do that. and I just felt like, you know what, Lyle, do, do something with your life that's, you know, productive. Be a part of this community, you know help and uh it's been great fulfillment so i want to continue that Um, i think you do that i think it's very obvious and so that's one of the reasons that i wanted to do the the podcast with you and befriend you um and i don't know if you mentioned it on the podcast but you know i I wrote you way back in the early 90s that's right i think it was yeah Yeah,
3: it's right when my show was uh, on
4: right And I had a feeling that you had a similar history uh, that I had in some ways. I just could feel it for some reason. Uh, And survivors are connected like that. I completely
3: uh, agree with you. I completely agree. And you're hypervigilant. Both
5: call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
3: You know, the hypervigilance that you develop in a house with that going on you know, continues after you're out of the house, but it's still a mind game, you know, hypervigilant. How's everyone's mood? Who's where? What's happening? You know, it's, it's a a very uh, corrosive corrupting and devastating uh, situation in, in so many homes in this country. And it's a problem that we ignore largely and we ignore it more when it happens to boys and it does happen to boys.
4: You know, tragically, it's a, it's a very American story now. Yeah. It, you know, it, 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 I mean, the vast majority, out.
3: The vast majority right. of children who are incested do not kill their parents, but about 300 kids a year in this country kill their parents. You know, and even more, parents kill their children. And it's right. something we can't turn a blind eye to,
4: you know. Well, it's just, it's just countless shattered lives, uh, you know, and how that life shatters, it could be homicide, but it could also be suicide. It could be a life of drug addiction. It could be a life of being in battering relationships. It could be a life of battering others because you're acting out from it. So the way the lives get shattered vary. Um, and, of course, I know, you know, we've re-experienced the fact that when an, an abuse victim actually... It ends up in a homicide and they've killed the perpetrator, uh, you know, if they've killed their abuser, whether it be a battered woman or a child. They do you know, the justice system is sometimes very unforgiving with it in in the mitigation of it. It's something that they've just sort of become coming to terms with now much better than in the nineties. Yeah. But uh, you know, I I think it's a huge problem in the country and so I I have Experienced it with just an outpouring of people who, you know, it was one of the reasons I testified. One of the reasons was to just give voice to what happened to me because so many people were writing me saying they were afraid to talk. Right, you know, and I, I knew they would be listening. You know, I, I kept a letter from a sex abuse, or actually a rape victim, in my pocket um, while I testified the whole time, and it just gave me strength. And there's such a deep connection in, in the country with that community, but they're still suffering. And there needs to be a continued appreciation for what victims are going through. Yes. Um, and better, better outreach to help them, right? Because yes. somebody really helped them. Really, you know. I mean, there's so much going on in families, your own, the same. Where people are not, you know, you have to help when you see something. You have to stop it early. Yeah. You know, shouldn't end up like Eric and I
3: without a doubt without a doubt well listen um i am fully 100% supportive of you and i'm waiting to hear what happens with this you future. have 60 seconds remaining i want to thank you lyle for doing this today um
5: you'll so come I'll back and do I'll it again
3: it. i would sure, like to course, have
5: anytime.
3: to have you talk about it as the case progresses because I'm very interested in looking forward to yours and your brother's freedom for the first time, really, in your whole life.
4: Thank you, Rosie.
3: All right, you take care of yourself, okay?
4: Okay, I will. Thank you so much.
3: I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope this helped reframe a series of events that are in the cultural zeitgeist that need to be corrected, re-examined, fixed. I'm really interested in what you think. Could you please send a voice memo about this episode and maybe we'll do an entire episode with your thoughts and observations and I will answer whatever questions you might have about Lyle or his brother or the case. So send them in if you're so moved. Send in your voice memos. The address is onwardrosie at gmail.com. Next week, join me for the outrageously funny, the very tall Jewish, hysterical comedian, actor, podcaster, and writer, my buddy and friend for many, many, many years, Judy Gold.